There's a lot to be said for the guiding hand of an A&R executive, that's artists and repertoire, while an artist is working on new material. And much as fans tend to blame the industry for all of their favorite act's biggest problems, wrote Jeff Giles for Ultimate Classic Rock, but every so often, an artist manages to make a perfect statement without any help from anyone at a label, and Boston mastermind Tom Schultz served up a multi-platinum example with his band's debut album released on August 25th, 1976. In the late 1960s, Tom Schultz began attending MIT, where he first began writing music. After graduating with a master's degree, he began working for the Polaroid Corporation in the product development division. By night, he played keyboards for bands in the Boston bar and club scene, where he collaborated with keyboardist drummer Jim Mesdea. The two, who shared a concept of the perfect rock band, one with, quote, crystal clear vocals and bone-crunching guitars, viewed themselves as only part-time musicians. Despite this, the pair built a small studio near Watertown, Massachusetts, to record their ideas. Schultz recorded for hours on end, often re-recording, erasing, and discarding tapes in an effort to create, quote, a perfect song. Eventually, both Tom Schultz and Jim Mazdea joined Mother's Milk, which was a band that featured guitarist Barry Goudreau, and it vied for recognition in the Boston music scene. Schultz quickly went from keyboardist to lead songwriter, and the band went through dozens of lead vocalists before Brad Delp auditioned. Delp was a former factory worker at an electric coil company, and he spent many of his weekends in cover bands. Delp drove to Revere Beach, where the three-piece was performing at a club named JoJo's. Delp was impressed that the band had gotten as far as recording a demo tape and were still recording and he earned his position in the band after auditioning with a fairly easy-to-sing song. Despite his incredible voice, the Joe Walsh song Rocky Mountain Way. Mother's Milk became an early version of Boston, with Goudreau on lead guitar. By 1973, the band had a six-song demo tape ready for mailing, and Schultz and his wife Cindy sent copies to every single record company they could find. The songs on the demo, check this out, were More Than a Feeling, Peace of Mind, Rock and Roll Band, Something About You, and Hitch a Ride, which was under a different title, and Don't Be Afraid, which would eventually be released on Don't Look Back. Schultz got rejection slips from several labels, RCA, Capital, Atlantic, and Elektra, among the most notable, and Epic Records rejected the tape flat out with a very insulting letter signed by company head Lenny Petsy that said the band offered nothing new. As we know, Lenny was wrong. Here's Tom Schultz talking about creating the music and why the record companies weren't interested. I was very surprised when they became, um, you know, successful hit songs. So now I, I wish there was a formula. It'd be a lot easier to plug in numbers and make it get results. I just sort of follow my instincts when I start um, working on a on a song or a piece of music, um, and there are some. Um, there are some arrangements in uh, uh, on Boston albums that are very uh, outlandish uh, that I definitely don't follow a formula, and um, I sort of I, I actually never uh, in, I never thought that I would be successful at it, so I wasn't like planning for to, to have uh, hit singles or, or anything like that. I was uh, just sort of writing music the way I wanted to hear it. Uh, and I, I was told that, uh, that Boston, that, that the music I was doing was not going to be a success at, back in the 70s because disco music was the happening thing. And I was, I was doing the wrong thing. Oops.
In fact, Schultz liked to tell people after the band made its breakthrough about this rejection letter from Lenny Petz. He said, I understand Lenny has been very quick to mention in public that he was a big part of us getting signed to Epic Records. So I always keep the letter that he signed saying that they had no interest. He said, I have one framed and hanging on the wall in my office. Awesome. Financial reality encroached on the dream for Delp, who departed shortly thereafter because he said there just wasn't any money coming in. By 1975, Tom Schultz was finished with the club scene, concentrating exclusively on the demo tapes he recorded at home in his basement. He was renting the house and spent most of his money on recording equipment. At one point, he spent the money he had saved for a down payment on a future home on an 8-track machine. He called Delp to provide vocals, saying, quote, if you can't really afford to join the band, or if you don't want to join the band, maybe you just want to come down to the studio and sing on some of these tapes for me. Not a bad decision that Brad Delp decided to do that. Schultz had given the Mother's Milk demo to a Polaroid co-worker whose cousin worked at ABC Records. ABC had signed one of Schultz's favorite bands, The James Gang, with Joe Walsh. The employee forgot to mail the tape out. Charles McKenzie, a New England rep for ABC Records, first overheard the tape in a co-worker's office. He called Paul Ahern, an independent record promoter in California, with whom he had a gentleman's agreement that if either heard anything interesting, they would let the other one know. Ahern had connections, including with this Petsy dude at Epic, and informed him, even though Petsy had passed on the original Mother's Milk demos. Epic contacted Schultz and offered a contract that first required the group to perform in a showcase for CBS reps, as the label wasn't sure that the band was actually a band and not just a mad genius at work in a basement, which of course it was. Mazdea had started to lose interest in the project by this time, and Schultz called Barry Goudreau and two other performers who had recorded on the early demos, bass player Fran Sheehan and drummer Dave Courier, to complete the lineup. In November 1975, the group performed four executives in a Boston warehouse that doubled as Aerosmith's practice facility. Mother's Milk was signed by CBS Records one month later in a contract that required 10 albums over six years. Courier quit before he knew the band passed the audition, and Schultz recruited drummer Sib Hashian in his place. Now signed, Epic Records insisted that the album be re-recorded in a, quote, professional studio by a professional producer. The label wanted the band to travel to Los Angeles and re-record their songs with a different producer. Schultz was unhappy with being unable to be in charge, and John Boylan, who was a friend of a friend of Ahern, came on board the project. Schultz said later, he came to look at my studio and he said, well, obviously we can't do it here. We're going to have to go to New York or L.A. to a real studio to do it. And I said, well, that's not going to happen, because if you take me out of my element to a studio where I can't do what I've done here, then I won't get the same thing. Boylan threatened to leave. Tom Schultz said, well, if you have to quit, I understand, but if this record does get recorded, the only way it's going to happen is here in my basement. In fact, he spoke 20 years later to a Japanese documentary about working alone. I realized that the only way I was going to be able to record the um, music that I had in mind was to do it alone. The whole key to the Boston music that's been successful was it was, it was written and recorded alone. <laughs> So at the last minute, Boylan said, tell you what, you record in your basement with your crazy equipment and bring that tape to L.A. and we'll mix it together. Schultz says, I was just about to say that's awesome. Before I could get the words out, he said, and we'll split the producer's royalty. And I said, now you're talking. Boylan had another duty to, quote, run interference for the label to keep them happy. Brad Delp said in an interview later, we didn't actually tell them that we were transferring the tapes. What they didn't know wouldn't hurt them. We told them we were working on the album with Boylan. That was all true. 
Tom still had stuff to do back home. A lot of bands were signed and get put in with a producer, and then all of a sudden it's the producer's project. Before you know it, it doesn't resemble anything of what you were doing. We were very fortunate that that didn't happen to us. Boylan had the ears to know that Tom knew his way around a studio. We gave them a complete tape, and they thought, man, these guys work fast. Boylan's own hands-on involvement would center on recording the vocals and mixing, and he took the rest of the band out to the West Coast where they recorded Let Me Take You Home Tonight. It was a decoy said Schultz, who recorded the bulk back home in Watertown, while Boylan arranged for Delp to have a custom-made Taylor acoustic guitar for thousands of dollars charged to the album budget. Schultz recorded such tracks as More Than a Feeling in his basement with a $100 Yamaha acoustic. That spring, Boylan returned to Watertown to hear the tracks on which Schultz had recut drums and other percussion and keyboard parts. He then hired a remote truck from Providence, Rhode Island to come to Watertown where it ran a snake through the basement window of Schultz's home to transfer his tracks to a 24-track deck. The entire recording was completed in the basement, except for Delp's vocals, which were recorded at Capitol Studios with Warren Dewey engineering those overdubs. All vocals were double-tracked except the lead vocal, and all parts were done by Delp. When Schultz himself arrived in L.A. for mixing, he felt intimidated and was afraid the professional engineers would view him as a, quote, hick that worked in a basement. Instead, he felt they were backwards in their approach and lacked knowledge that he had obtained over the years. These people were so swept up, he said, in how cool they were and how important it was to have all this high-priced crap that they couldn't see the forest for the trees. Boylan had his only real confrontation with Schultz during this mixing stage, in which Schultz handled the guitar tracks, Boylan the drums, and Dewey in the vocals. Schultz pushed guitars too high in the mix, rendering vocals inaudible at times. Why? Tom Schultz loves guitars. The entire operation has been described as, quote, one of the most complex corporate capers in the history of the music business. With the exception of Let Me Take You Home Tonight, the album was a virtual copy of those demo tapes. It was recorded for a cost of a few thousand dollars, a paltry amount in an industry accustomed to spending hundreds of thousands at the time on a single recording. The first big hit on the album was More Than a Feeling, and Tom Schultz talked about the song. The theme of the song is that... uh, um you know, music brings back um, very vivid memories, and it and it does it, uh, you know, almost instantly and uncontrollably. Um, it's something I think everybody experiences. So, uh, of course, uh, this is my music, and uh, I, I it was writing about images that were in my mind or that music reminded me of. The whole theme of the song is um, when you hear the, a song that they used to play when it brings you back to that point in time and reminds you of something good or bad. In, in the case of More Than a Feeling, it was sort of a bittersweet ballad. When Tom Schultz was a young fella, Walk Away Renee by the Left Bank was popular and he had a major crush on Marianne, who's mentioned in the song, and he pined for her. And these Japanese documentarians asked him if Marianne was a real person and who that was. There actually is a Marianne. Uh, she was. She wasn't my girlfriend. She was a. Uh, I had it when I was a, a little kid. Um, I think I was maybe uh, eight or nine. I had a, a much older cousin. Um, who I just thought was the most beautiful girl I'd ever seen. And her name was Marianne. I was secretly in love with my cousin. <laughs> but I was only eight or nine. The song Peace of Mind was written about Schultz's Polaroid bosses and recorded around the fall of 1974. 
Foreplay, which is, of course, the extensive intro to Long Time, it's a medley, was actually composed many years prior in 1972. Rock and roll band dated back to the band's Mother's Milk demo. It was inspired by Ms. Dea's experiences performing in bar bands and was written just as pure fantasy. The album version still features Ms. Dea's drums from the demo tape. Smokin' was written and recorded in 1973. At the time, it was called Shakin'. Hitch a Ride was originally titled San Francisco Day with lyrics starting in New York City and then planning to hitch a ride to head for the other side. This was the first song that Delp had re-recorded after he had left and then come back to create the special effect of a bent note on the track's organ solo. Schultz slowed down one of the recording reels with his finger. That's adorable. Something About You was originally titled Life Ain't Easy and was written around 1975, and because it was the last demo, it ended up as the second last track on the album. Now, what about the album title? Makes sense that it would just be the name of the band, self-titled. Well, it was only the working title of the project. It didn't become the official name until the album was getting mixed, and somebody at the studio said, well, why don't you just call it Boston? It was an obvious choice for me, said Tom Schultz, because I grew up in Toledo, and at night you could receive WBZ from Boston, which at the time, back in the 60s, was playing the new English rock. I was amazed at what I was hearing, and that's what got me interested in rock. So the name fit. The trademark science fiction theme of the album cover was Schultz's concept. He said the idea was escape, and I thought of a spaceship guitar. Boston was released by Epic Records on August 25th, 1976. The album broke out in Cleveland first, and the following week it had been added at almost 400 radio stations. Had the record been unsuccessful, Schultz, who was 29 at the time, planned to abandon his entire rock dream. He still worked at Polaroid during the first few weeks of the album's success. Schultz was pessimistic about the success until the album sold 200,000 copies. He said, then all of a sudden I realized I was in the music business. He told Rolling Stone, I got word on what the sales figures were while I was still at Polaroid full-time. It wasn't easy staying there for two more weeks. Critics were kind to Boston. Rolling Stone wrote that the group's affinity for heavy rock and roll provided a sense of dynamics that cohered magnetically. The album was certified gold two months after its release and sold another half million copies within the next month, going platinum for the first time in November of 1976. By January of 1977, the debut disc sold 2 million copies, making it one of the fastest-selling debut albums in rock history, and more than a feeling had become a hit single. Schultz said, I was at Polaroid when I first heard more than a feeling on the radio. I was listening to somebody else's radio the first week the album came out, and it did better than I expected. Epic Records, for its part, was pleased with its new acquisition. Boston and another new band called Wild Cherry, they were among Epic's biggest success stories of 1976. The album got several accolades, including a Grammy nomination as Best New Artist. Boston sold 6 million copies by December of 1977. For massive popularity, Boston was considered to rival established stars like Peter Frampton, Fleetwood Mac, and Stevie Wonder. The Boston album has been described as a pivot in the transition of mainstream American rock from blues-based proto-metal to power pop. Quote, combining some of the ebullience of the rock era's early days with the precision and technology that would mark rock record productions from then on. Schultz said, I was basically a dork that hit the books and liked to build things and did all of the things you weren't supposed to do to be popular. But somehow I ended up on stage playing guitar in front of everybody else. What ended up going on the record was um, sort of a, a very pure form of what I could do and, and what I wanted to do. Um, and that's what, uh, that's what worked. I thought it was amazing 
that people were interested in, in it when it was brand new. So I've uh, I continue to be uh, surprised that people are interested in the fact that they are interested in it so much later is uh, amazing to me, and I'm very thankful. <laughs> In November of 2003, the album was certified with sales of 17 million in the U.S. Worldwide, the album has sold 20 million copies, including a million here in Canada, where it was certified diamond. The Boston album is the second best-selling debut album of all time in the United States after Guns N' Roses' Appetite for Destruction and is our latest inductee into the Drive Rock of Fame.